So you can turn in the Bible to Hebrews chapter 9. And we finished uh, the first half of this chapter. And I intend on finishing chapter 9 tonight. But just to refresh our memories just a little bit, without too much review, there's a couple of key verses in this passage. So if you will look at verses 11 and 12. I don't want to review too much. It'll, it'll start coming back to us as we read it and study it. This is a little review in, in Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12. But Christ being come, and high priest of good things to come, by greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. The contrast is between the earthly tabernacle, remember we studied it, uh, the, the tent that was basically folded up and moved from place to place as the Israelites would journey, and it was there from the giving of the law at, at, at Mount Sinai to, uh, to the building of the temple. They used it. They used the tabernacle. And uh, it was very symbolic. It, it, had, it was an earthly tabernacle in the sense that it was made with hands. It was physical. It was made according to the pattern that God gave Moses up on the mountain. And it all was types and shadows and figures. That's the, that's the words that Hebrews uses and the Bible uses. Types and shadows and figures of the coming of the real tabernacle, the real sanctuary, the real final sacrifice that was to be made. And it says that Christ's coming um, in verse 11, and specifically in verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once. You'll see the word once repeated several times in the book of Hebrews when it's talking about Christ's sacrifice. And it's contrasting the difference between the Levitical sacrifices that had to be made over and over. It was required. That's the way they had to do it. We've talked about it. I don't have to, to, to repeat that, but the continual offering up of blood sacrifices as, as was required under that first covenant. But the Lord did what He did once, having obtained, past tense, eternal redemption for us. He went and got something for us. Okay, The Lord Jesus got something for us. He got eternal redemption for us. That's what the Bible tells us right here. Those high priests couldn't get eternal redemption for the people of Israel, or for anyone, or even for themselves. But the Lord Jesus could and did. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling uh, the unclean sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, He is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called, that they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now I want to look at this just for a minute. We talked about this last week. If the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of the ashes of the heifer would sanctify the flesh of men. Remember we talked about that? And I've studied Hebrews many times in my life, but I've learned, I learned something every time I'll study a book again. And I learned it more clearly, what that meant. And we talked about it. Remember that the, uh, so many of the cleansings and purifying things under the Levitical system were not for uh, 
not for the cleansing of the conscience, not for the actual washing away of sin and the guilt of sin and shame from the life of an individual believer. God would have to do that. He did it in the Old Testament. He does it in the New Testament. But God did make a provision. Again, I think it's very merciful of the Lord under this system and under this first covenant which He made with Moses, there is a forgiveness, there is a purifying of the flesh. And I gave the example that if an Israelite, this is just an example, there's others, okay? But if an Israelite touched a dead body, accidentally, on purpose, however, he touched a dead body, maybe he's burying his family member, okay? Or maybe he's in battle and he kills somebody and touches a dead body. However, he touched a dead body. It didn't mean he was a sinner going to hell. It meant that he had to be cleansed before he could come into the congregation of the Lord, before he could enter in to the, the court around the, uh, the tabernacle and participate in that wor- corporate worship of the Lord. And so he was unclean, ceremonially or ritualistically unclean. Okay, so what was God's answer for that? His answer for that was to take the red heifer and to. Uh, and to uh, burn it, offer to kill it, offer it up for a sacrifice to the Lord, take the ashes from that burnt sacrifice and mix it with pure spring water. And it, it, a little bit went a long way. Like I said, I, from what I heard, I don't know if it's true or not, I heard that in the whole history of Israel, there were only seven uh, red heifers that were ever needed because they would save these ashes and they would mix them with a little water when it was needed again. And you can imagine that would go a long way. But on the third day and the seventh day, they would uh, sprinkle that water and the ashes of the heifer upon that person who had touched touched the dead body. And then after this time, period of waiting and doing what God required, then they were allowed to join the people and worship the Lord. Okay, That's what it's talking about. If, he says, for if the blood, verse 13, of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean. It's, it's good to know this. It's just good to understand what's being talked about here. It's sanctified to the purifying of the flesh. But that's not really what fits a person for heaven. They could do that all day long and not be fit for heaven. God didn't intend for that to fit men for heaven. Okay, But it did fit them to go into worship with the people. You might have committed or I might have committed some sin 30 minutes before church started. Thank the Lord we can turn to Him in forgiveness and still come into the congregation and worship God. Amen? And He can minister to us. I'm thankful for that. Well, He made a provision uh, under this system as well. But if that would work, so to speak, and was sufficient in God's eyes to purify the flesh ritualistically or ceremonially of a, a worshiper of Jehovah, how much more, verse 14, shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot, sinless, okay, to God. Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We're purged from something to something. And the blood of Jesus does that. The others were types and shadows and figures, okay? Those animal sacrifices were types and shadows and figures, but it could not do what the blood of Jesus did. The blood of Jesus can do what the blood of Jesus can do. And it it can purify the conscience and purge us from dead works, anything that's not of God, anything that's of this world, anything of that sinful nature of Adam, and it could even be dead religious works. I think it would include that. But I certainly don't think it's only that. I think it's just the outworkings of the flesh. 
dead works. The blood of Jesus will cleanse us and purge us from dead works to serve the living God. And so, I want you to look at a couple of verses here. Turn to Psalm 51. Remember, we spent a lot of time, two weeks ago, we spent a lot of time talking about the law. What was the purpose of the law? What was the weakness of the law? Remember, finding fault with them. Uh, and if the law had been able to, to do what the blood of Jesus had done, then we wouldn't have needed the blood of Jesus. We could have, it would have been sufficient to just to have a law or a covenant or a system that would have done it. But the Bible says it's impossible. It's impossible. By the works of the, the flesh uh, and the righteousness of the law, no man's going to be justified in God's sight. So let's look at this. I want to look at two scriptures from David. Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4. And we know David had notable sin in his life. Thank the Lord, all of our sins not written down for the whole world to read. But he had notable sin. He lived. The reason I'm using him is because he is an Old Testament saint, right? He lived under this Levitical system. He, he was under it. It was the authority. Above that's God, okay? But he lived and functioned and worshipped Jehovah under this system. And guess what? He loved it. He loved it. He didn't despise it. But he didn't look to a law to save him. That's what we keep focusing on. Anybody that does... Even the, the Pharisees in Jesus' day that trusted that they were children of Abraham, right? The Lord said God can raise sto- uh, these stones up to be children of Abraham. It's got to be more than that. You worship and honor Me with your mouth, but your heart's far from God. If you'd known My Father, you'd known Me. So everything for them was outward observances without it being a matter of the heart. Okay, But it wasn't that way for David, though he lived under the same system. That's where it shows you. It's an individual person seeking after God. They can find God. They can find Him in the Old Testament. And we can find Him in the New Testament. Praise God. But let's read the first four verses. Have mercy upon me, O God. And I want you to just notice how nothing about blood sacrifices or animals or a high priest or any of that's mentioned. Here's a man that lived under the law. He understood it. Didn't keep it perfectly. Nobody did except Jesus. But he understood the need for the mercy of the Savior and the mercy of God. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to Thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of Thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. You see what he's saying? You do it, God. It's not the heifer. And it's not the sprinkling of an unclean to purify my flesh. My flesh is fine. I need a touch from God. I need forgiveness of God. I've sinned against You and You only. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression. That's the confession and facing up to it in the repentance, okay? And my sin is ever before me. Against Thee, Thee only have I sinned and done this evil in Thy sight, that Thou mightest be justified when Thou speak and be clear when Thou judgest. He's just lining it up straight out there. I've sinned. And I've sinned against you only. And I don't need the, this, the priest. I'll do what's required by the law. I understand the need for that. But what I really need is for you to blot out my transgressions so I can sleep at night. So I can be right with you. So that my conscience can be clean. So that my heart is not condemning me. And I know at any given moment I'm right with my Savior. Isn't it wonderful to know that? Okay, again, these people look forward to a coming Savior. A lot of the Psalms that David wrote were Messianic Psalms. He knew 
there was a coming Christ. The Lord promised the coming Christ. All the way in the Garden of Eden. Okay, and let's look at one more verse. Verse uh, chapter 32. And we'll read just one verse in this chapter. 32 verse 5. Same type of plea to the Lord. A man that lived under the law who sinned and knew where he needed his mercy and forgiveness from. 32.5 I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. And guess what? Thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. And he says, think on these things for a little while. Selah. Okay? And so it's just wonderful of the Lord. It's kind of the Lord. It's good of the Lord to do what He's done. It's good that, that the Lord didn't wait till Jesus came before people could be saved. You know, He didn't wait till Jesus came before people could be right with Him. He was saving Enoch before the law was given. And Noah and Abraham and people like this and Isaac and Jacob, they all lived before that. And they're in heaven today. And we're going to be with them. That's part of the saints of God. He's always been a merciful God. He's always been a, a God that if you sought Him, you could find Him. The condemnation was that men weren't seeking after God. But uh, anyway, so we're back to, to this chapter now in Hebrews. And it says in verse 15, we just read it, and this is new material. We're, we're really going to start covering here and moving forward. And for this cause, He is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the, and that by the means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Okay? The promises that God gives of eternal inheritance, you see, that has to be something spiritual, right? That's something spiritual. And it's a promise that the Bible tells us very clearly, especially in Galatians chapter 3. We don't have the time to read it. We read a lot two weeks ago. But it says that the promise is to those who receive it by faith. Not by circumcision or uncircumcision, but, but those who receive it by faith. Abraham was not under the Levitical law. You know that? Mm-hmm. And the promise was made to him and his seed. And, and that it's, an, it's an eternal inheritance and it's received by faith. We receive Christ by faith. Not by joining Cornerstone Church or some church or lining up perfectly with the right set of doctrine. We come to know Him. Our sins are forgiven. We call out for mercy like David in the the Psalms. And we thank the Lord that He's obtained eternal redemption for us. I thank the Lord I live on this side of the cross. It's His purpose and will and intent for us right here to live on this side of the cross. And we have that. And it's all been finished and completed. But I want to talk about this word mediator for just a minute. It says that Jesus Christ Himself uh, is the mediator of the New Testament or the New Covenant by means of death. So He's a mediator of a New Covenant by means of death. So I want, I want to read uh, from some studying that I did, one of the books that I studied. It talks about a mediator. The word mediator in this translation is, is the word messites which refers to one who intervenes between two to make or restore peace and friendship, to form a compact or to ratify a covenant. All right? So there are mediators today um, between, say, two parties legally. Like, uh, let's say you have a union 
and then you have the, um, the big business that they work for, and they might have a mediator to try to get a contract that both parties can agree on. Usually when it's done, neither one's perfectly happy. They both felt that they had to give up, give up too much and so forth. But Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. And He makes peace between men and God. Not just the washing of the flesh. Not just ceremonially, ceremonially fit to come into the house of God but clean in our conscience like we talked about, washed in the blood of Jesus. And He is the mediator of that covenant. I'm going to read a little bit more. It says, Here the Messiah acts as a go-between or a mediator between a holy God and sinful man. Right? And even if you picture Jesus hanging on a cross, He was lifted up from the earth, the Bible says. Right? He was lifted up. And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto Me. Certainly that means we can magnify the Lord, lift Him up in that manner. But physically, He was lifted up. Between two thieves, He hung on a cross between heaven and earth. People looked up to Him when He was on the cross and mocked Him and ridiculed Him. And some said, surely this was the Son of God. But He was lifted up between heaven and earth. And He is the mediator between a holy God and sinful man. And He removes... uh, It says, by His death on the cross, He removes the obstacle which caused an estrangement between man and God. The obstacle that has always caused a, uh, an estrangement, that means to be uh, you know, uh, put apart, like divided. Okay, The thing that's always divided men from a holy God is our sin. It's not physical distance. It's not the fact that His throne's in heaven and we're crawling around on this earth. It's the fact that He's a holy God and we're sinful men. And there has to be some way to bridge that gap. And we are now, as saved men and women, partakers of His divine nature. He's actually imputed the righteousness of Christ to us. His Holy Spirit, the eternal Spirit, lives inside the heart and the life of a believer. Our body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Our sins are washed away. And He has become that mediator between the two. When the sinner accepts the merits of, of the Messiah's sacrifice. The guilt and penalty of the sin is no more. The power of sin in his life is broken. He becomes the recipient of the divine nature, which we just talked about, and the estrangement between himself and God, both legal and personal, disappears. Now this is new with the new covenant, accepting Christ to where that, that estrangement legally and on a personal basis is actually removed. Okay? It's done through the blood of Jesus. It doesn't mean God wasn't saving people in the Old Testament, but, but the blood of those bulls and calves under that Levitical system couldn't do it. Okay? Couldn't do it. The Lord could do it. And he, He's done it thoroughly through His Son, Jesus Christ. But again, it's the, it's the promise of the inheritance that we receive by faith and He's a mediator of a better covenant. Now I'm just going to read this from 1 Peter. It says, We're saved to an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith, unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So there again, it's kept by faith. We have an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled. Where is it? It's reserved in heaven for all of us. God's reserved it for us. Is safe and sound. It's going to be perfect when we get there. Okay? But we're kept by the power of faith. So we're going to actually enter into heaven 
and enter into enjoying all the fullness of the blessings of God and the inheritance that He has for us and eternal life. We have eternal life now, but to walk in, with the Lord in that state by faith, right? The just shall live by faith. We're saved by faith, we continue in faith, and we're kept by faith, by the power of God through faith. And so I want to keep moving on in Hebrews 9, verses 16 and 17. It says, For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For, for a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. That's simply saying, y'all, uh, the covenant that they're talking about, the testament or the covenant, okay, is actually realized. You can only benefit from it when, when the testator, that's the one who made the thing, okay, the covenant, when he dies. If he's still living, it doesn't, you don't, you know it's a promise and you know you're going to get it. It's like a big inheritance, okay? Let's say that Liz owes $10,000 to the bank and they need it now. And she knows that when, uh, you know, somebody's promised in their will that they're going to give her $10,000. Knowing that would be a great encouragement, but knowing that she can't actually benefit from it until the person dies and then it's handed off to her, right? That's all it's saying here. These things were in effect. They were sure. They were, they were reserved. They were promised. But to actual, actually benefit from it and enjoy the benefits of it, there had to be the death of the testator in this case. And that would be Jesus, okay? That would be Jesus that died for us. And, and so... Uh, we understand that. The, the force, it says, the force is the word that's used in verse 17. For a testament is a force after that men are dead. That means the strength. The strength comes after men have died. And then you can enjoy it. Okay? Then you can really benefit from it. Let's keep reading. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken... Every precept to all the people according to the law. He took the blood of calves and goats and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. So he, that's referring back to Moses in the first testament, right? The first covenant. He's saying even that old one which is uh, was dedicated or inaugurated it had blood. Okay, it was inaugurated by blood. Every covenant, even if it was between two men, two Hebrew men, or, or say Abraham and somebody else, okay, when these they made a covenant together, there would always be a, some sort of blood that was shed. They would offer an animal, and there would be blood shed, and the blood was was basically the uh, what validated that thing. The the the, the giving of the sacrifice. For the shedding of the blood of an animal was was a pledge to, to say that all the terms of this covenant are going to be kept. Everything we both agreed upon here today is going to be kept. And they would offer blood. Something died and blood was shed. Don't ask me why it's always been that way. That's the way that the Bible says it, it is. And that's the way it was. And by the shedding of blood, it showed that this was going to, we're going to keep all the terms of our covenant. Okay, 
And so I want to look at a couple of passages here. Keep your spot marked there in Hebrews 9. And I want to read two scriptures here. Because I feel like what we're going to be, when we're through with this study, we're going to have a, all of us are going to have a much better study. I mean, much better grasp and understanding of the two covenants. Not perfect, and there's people that know it a lot better than me, and we could keep studying it more, but um, I just really feel it's going to be good to have a, a greater grasp on this. So we're not ashamed. You know, we're work, workmen that can rightly divide the word of truth. Because there's a new covenant theology out there, and it sounds wonderful, but it's not good. It's a messed up doctrine, but it's being preached in 2017 in places we know right around here. And it sounds wonderful. And if you say anything objectionable about it, then they think that you're legalistic or you're a Pharisee or you want to go back under that old covenant. But the new covenant theology itself is not sound doctrine. It does not rightly uh, speak of the law and what its purpose was and how it was a schoolmaster. The Apostle Paul, saved by grace through faith, says it was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And so I want us to understand it. I want to understand it myself. Alright, let's look at a couple of passages. Exodus 24, 3-8. This is, this is the giving of the, new, the, the first one. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord. He was that go-between. Okay, He was a mediator. And all the judgments and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord had said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning and built an altar under the hill and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel which offered burnt offerings. That was animals that were killed. Okay, Burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the audience of all the people. And they said, All the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord had made with you concerning all these words. Do you see that's just a picture of it? I mean, that's what we're reading in Hebrews. We went back and saw. It's just like the Lord said. And so that covenant was validated by a blood sacrifice. And he was sprinkled on the people, okay? And on the book of the law. It's like on both parties, okay? And the people said, willingly, all that God said we're going to do. And you know they didn't do it, okay? They didn't keep it. Finding fault with them, we've already studied in Hebrews, it was the law was weak through the flesh. The law itself wasn't weak, but it was weak through the flesh of man. You have two parties. One's able to keep his end of the bargain. The other cannot. God knew they wouldn't. But it was to teach them how to worship and how to approach the Lord and so forth. So let's keep reading. And we're going uh, to look at a couple of other verses but uh, in the Old Testament. But I want to get back to Hebrews 9 very quickly and read verses 21 and 22. Moreover, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. We've all heard that at Scripture, right? That without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Remission simply means forgiveness. There has to be blood shed. And again, it's not like uh, 
you know, we can bring a grain offering to the Lord from the first fruits of a crop or a nice basket of peaches that we grew on a tree and said, this is beautiful and this is wonderful. Let me offer that to the Lord for my sins. No, the wages of sin is death. Something has to die. Okay? Jesus died in our stead. That's what that means. He died in our place. The animal sacrifices were pictures of the final sacrifice. And now that the final sacrifice has come, there's no need for the other ones. Uh, let's look uh, let's look real quickly at Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. Leviticus 17.11 For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have, give, I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. This is where we put doctrines together. This is where you look at it. You say, well, let's get a little old. I wish we were talking about something more exciting. But we're building a doctrine here. And we're looking. It is exciting to me what the Lord has done. One more scripture here from the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 19. We'll begin reading in verse 2. Numbers 19, verse 2. This is the ordinance of the law which the, which the Lord hath commanded, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring thee a red heifer without spot, wherein is no blemish, and upon which never came yoke. And ye shall give her unto Eleazar the priest, and he, that, that he may bring her forth without the camp, and one shall slay her before his face. And Eleazar the priest shall take of the blood with his finger and sprinkle of her blood directly before the tabernacle of the congregation seven times. And one shall burn the heifer in his sight. Her skin and her flesh and her blood with her dung shall he burn. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast it into the midst of the burning of the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes, and he shall bathe his flesh in water, and afterward he shall come into the camp, and the priest shall be unclean until the evening. That's the ceremonially unclean until the evening. And he that burneth her shall wash his clothes in water, and bathe his flesh in water, and he shall be unclean until the evening. And a man that is unclean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer, and lay them up without the camp in a clean place. And it shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for a water of separation. It is a purification for sin. And he that gathereth the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the even. And it shall be unto the children of Israel and unto the stranger that sojourneth among them for a statute forever. So there had to be shedding of blood. Okay? And God provided that in, in the Old Testament. He provided it perfectly through the coming of Jesus Christ, okay? Through the coming of Jesus Christ, blood had to be shed. That's God's way. So I'm reading back in Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to read, um, we're going to finish up this chapter tonight. Let's read 23 and 24. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. Speaking about the blood sacrifice, the patterns should be purified with the animal sacrifices. Okay? But the heavenly things themselves with the sacrifices that are better than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the truth. But Christ entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. There's a lot spoken here. 
You know, it's, it's amazing how many people say that they're Christians, and I'm not saying that none of them are. There are people that are Christians that just may be immature, new believers, or whatever. But how many people say they're Christians, but they don't, they don't really understand their own faith? Some may not even be saved, okay? Some might be saved, and they need to get on with it. We need to all get on with it. To understand a Scripture that Christ is entered into heaven and appear, there to appear in the presence of God for us. These are just biblical things. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. It's not enough to just say, I love Jesus. It's not enough to just say, Jesus is my homeboy, and put that on a t-shirt. Or to join the Fellowship of Christian Athletes because everybody's doing it in high school. I mean, I remember being in high school, everybody wanted to be part of that club. We got a cool t-shirt that said FCA on it. And all the football players that I played with, we'd all go to one or two meetings to get our free t-shirt and wear it around school and it just we're part of some kind of club. But that didn't make, make us Christians. And, and we, we need to know the Lord. We need to know His Word. We need to know what Jesus did for us and what He's doing for us right now. And so it's a wonderful thing that the, the figures, the earthly tabernacle and the earthly temple and the earthly sacrifices, he says it's, it, it was necessary that they were the way that they were. But if you're talking about a, a heavenly sanctuary and you're talking about uh, an eternal priest, an eternal priesthood, eternal, just goes on forever. That has to be the work of God. That's something of heaven. That's not natural. That's not just of this earth. That's Christ Himself, the eternal Son, who offered Himself through the eternal Spirit to God once and for all. And He is now in heaven before us. The types and shadows are done away with. Remember, I think it was Matthew Henry that I read from two weeks ago. It says a candles are, uh, the Old Covenant is no more use in Gospel times than the candle would be in the, in the broad daylight in the middle of a... You know, when the sun's fully risen. A little candle, you wouldn't even notice it. You wouldn't even see it. It's just overwhelmed. It's totally overwhelmed and pointless and worthless now that the sun's shining. And so, Christ did this once and He is in the presence of God to appear in the presence of God, it says in verse 24, for us. That's part of the Lord's ministry for us. He didn't just finish. He finished His work on the cross, but He has a work now. He has a ministry now. He ever liveth to intercede on our behalf. He never went into that earthly tabernacle. He went to the temple, we know. He didn't go as a high priest and offer those sacrifices. He did enter into heaven once after He offered Himself. And so let's read the last couple of verses here. We'll read 25 and 26 and then we'll, we'll close with 27 and 8. Now, nor yet that He should offer Himself often as the high priest entereth in into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Isn't it better that he puts away sin? He makes atonement for our sin. Y'all know what the word means. It's a covering. The Lord does make atonement for our sins, but He does more. The blood of Jesus does more than an atonement for sin. The blood of Jesus washes our sin away and makes us clean in our conscience, inwardly and in our hearts. And again, 
I said the word once would be mentioned several times in Hebrews. What you have here is one verse the other. You have an annual day of atonement. An annual day. That means it's every year, right? Every year, the priest would go in and make sacrifices for his own sins, then the sins of the people. One set day, big day, and it was offered, sacrifice was offered first for himself, then for the people. But Jesus did it once. So it's eternal. I mean, it's an annual day of atonement, an annual covering, you could, if you want to look at it that way, versus an eternal salvation. He has etern- obtained eternal redemption for us. He did this once. It's better, right? Remember who he's writing to. He's writing to us, but the Holy Spirit's writing to the Hebrew believers that were feeling downtrodden and persecuted and doubting and wondering. And it was so hard because they're being persecuted. And he's saying, hey, what you have is way better. What you have is way better. And what we have in Jesus is way better, I promise you. I want to read this um, as well. Talking about how He appears in heaven for us. Under the new covenant, there is a positive finality. He has appeared once for all. That's past tense. The work never needs to be repeated. Under the new covenant, number two, there is a propitious time. He appeared at the end of the ages. That is, after the Old Testament or Old Covenant had conclusively demonstrated man's failure and powerlessness. In other words, the Lord let the Old Covenant run its course until He was ready to bring Jesus to prove, one of the things it did was prove man's inability, right? It showed, after a long time, even the most godly and righteous men that lived under that system, it wasn't going to do it. This old covenant wouldn't do it. So the Lord came in a perfect time. A perfect work. This is under the new covenant. A perfect work. He appeared to put away sin. Which we just talked about. The emphasis is on the words put away. Not just atonement, but put away. It was no longer a matter matter of annual atonement. Now it was eternal forgiveness. And the last thing that the author mentions under the new covenant there's a personal sacrifice. He put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. By, of Himself. In His own body, He bore the punishment which our sins deserved. Okay? <laughs> Thank the Lord that He's done that for us. And I'm very thankful that He's done that for me. I'm going to close with these last couple of verses, y'all. Let's read verses 27 and 28. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. We all know that Scripture as well. So Christ was once, there's that word again, offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. That second appearance is talking about the rapture. That second appearance is talking about the blessed hope of the church. But it says, as it is appointed unto men, in verse 27, once to die, but after this, the judgment. I've heard old preachers say that's an appointment every man's going to keep. Okay? You might break an appointment. You might cancel a doctor's appointment or something like that. But that's an appointment that every man's going to keep. Either we're going to be raptured or we're going to die, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the, uh, the, the way that that is. So that's an appointment every man's going to keep. And then will be the judgment of God. But the Bible says that if we've trusted in Jesus in this life, we've passed from death to life. That's already taken place. The judgment 
that should have been upon us was put on Christ. And I look to Him now, the author and the finisher of my faith, and I see what He did for me, and He died in my place, and He took my, my punishment upon Himself, and I believe that that will be sufficient for me, that what He did, the Father accepted, and what He did was is enough, and that what the Word of God says is true, and the Gospel is true, and I give my life to Christ. And we're passed from death to life. We're not going to face the Lord as judge in that sense. We are going to stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. We'll be judged on the, the deeds done in our flesh as believers. But as far as our eternal salvation, we just read it. He obtained eternal salvation or eternal redemption for us. That's done. Past tense. And we have passed from death to life. And so, well, again, we're so thankful that the lost man won't have a redo. If he dies, it's appointed unto him once to die. There's lost people that you know and that I know. And lost people we don't know. And they're going to die. And if they die still lost, they're going to die in the way to their sin. We die one of two ways with our sins forgiven and Jesus put upon Jesus, or we die in our sins. If we die in our sins, there is no hope. There is no hope. There's no redo. There's not a second chance. There's not a little glimmer of hope that maybe we can work something else out down the road. It's over. It's appointed unto men's one, men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Lost men, when they die, they'll instantly go to hell. Their body will go in the grave. They'll go to hell. They'll be resurrected, so to speak, at the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial reign of Christ about a thousand and seven years from now roughly, okay? And and they'll receive their official sentencing. They'll be judged out of the book of life. And whosoever's name is not found written in the book of life is going to be cast into the lake of fire. So they go to hell when they die uh, without the Lord. They're going to be there tormented. They'll be raised again only to stand before the Lord as judge. And it's a fearful thing because the Bible says the heavens and earth... Uh, flee away. You know, it's like the, the stars, everything flees from this this judgment of the Lord, this great white throne judgment. And everyone's judged out of the book of life. You're in Christ or you're outside of Christ. And there's no middle ground. And there's no almost. I think, was it Felix who said, Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian? Paul says, I wish you were all together Christian. And so that judgment is coming and it's serious, we need to take seriously this life and living for God and walking with God. And we need to take seriously our call to be witnesses for Christ. And not let days... And I do it. And I have to ask God to forgive me and to stir me up again. I'll let days pass and weeks pass and sometimes months pass without sharing the Gospel with one lost person. We, we can't do that, y'all. I can't do that. I've got to be engaged, you know, in, in understanding my purpose here. And and all of us. And the Lord helps us to do that. And the last the last thing I want to just uh, talk about here. It says in the last script last verse, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. I believe and in everything I've studied and, and just in my own heart and studying it as well, this is speaking of the rapture. Okay? That's who's going to appear to. 
you know, the, the second coming is really broken down in two parts. There's a second coming. But if you want to look at it in a big sense, okay, in a big sense, there's a rapture and then a seven-year tribulation and then the Lord comes back to the earth. If you want to... And sometimes you'll even see it. We're going to look at some of this this coming Sunday. Um, it's kind of lumped together in a big event like the Day of the Lord or a big end time thing. But uh, those that look for Him... The first time He came for the purpose of dealing with sin. That's why it says that the second time He's coming without sin. Sin's not going to be the issue. He's not coming to rapture his, the church but to, to deal with sin. He's coming to rapture the church because it's time to call His church home. To be with Him because He's prepared a mansion for us in glory. And He said, I'm going to come again and receive you unto Myself. That where I am there ye may be also. That's what he's talking about. This is the blessed hope of the church. Blessed hope in the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. And we're to be looking for Him when He comes. We're to be looking. So I'm going to close with this. And uh, you can come on up. Three appearances of Christ are mentioned in this, the last few chapter, verses that we read in chapter 9. I just want to touch on them. Three appearances of Christ. Verse 26, it says... He, he at the end of that scripture, look at verse 26. At the end of the world, he hath appeared, past tense, to put away sin. That was his first coming, right? He appeared. He died on the cross for the purpose to to uh, put away sin, to be that final sacrifice. So that's an appearance, of uh, appearance, past tense. Uh, verse 24, the Bible says, "For Christ is now entered, not entered into the holy place made with hands." But it says at the end of that scripture, he has entered into heaven itself now to appear. That's another appearance in the presence of God for us. That is a current or present position of Jesus. Okay, so he appeared once to put away sin when he died on the cross, fulfilled the law, born of a virgin, the whole bit, rose from the dead. He now appears at, in, in heaven for us. Okay, that's a current ongoing appearance of the Lord. The first appearance saved us from the penalty of sin. The second appearance, where He is now interceding for us, saves us from the power of sin. And the last appearance, which we just read, them that look to Him will He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. He's going to, when He raptures us, y'all, hallelujah, He's going to save us from the presence of sin. Because where He's bringing us, there's not going to be any sin. Let me ask you today, did you wrestle with any kind of sin today? Even a temptation of any kind? I would imagine you did. Okay? A sinful thought, an action, a reaction, something. Okay? Or even just seeing other people sin around you and you didn't even partake in it yourself. But, but when the Lord raptures us, we're going to be saved from the presence of sin. Because where He's bringing us is a holy place. And sin doesn't enter in there. And that's the last appearance of the Lord, so to speak. This is one of the reasons it's a blessed hope of the church. And I always think about it, that we're saved never to sin again. It's one of the things that's going to make heaven so sweet is not to even wrestle with it. We get up, and we're getting ready to go to work or to school or whatever, and we know what it's going to be like when we get there. And so we know there's cursing, and we know that there's coarse jesting, and we know that there's uh, all types of 
temptations and just in our own flesh to worry, to lust, to whatever. Doubt God. There's all kinds of temptations just in our own minds and self. But when we're saved, the Bible says when we see Him, we'll be like Him. We'll see Him as He is. That's that last appearance that we're looking for. We're going to talk about that more actually this Sunday. The Lord's already given me a message for this Sunday. I want you to stand if you would. And just, just take a little time. You know, there's a few more, four more chapters in Hebrews. The next chapter is along the same lines about the blood of Jesus and the perfect sacrifice. Then, then we get into the chapter about faith. And then we get to a chapter about uh, heaven and not despising the grace of God. And then we get to the last chapter with just some instructions from the Lord. But this week and the next week, we, we want to look. You know, we're looking at that, what Jesus did for us on the cross. How is it better? Why is it better? What is He doing for us now? It's not just historical facts. He's a real God. He's a real Savior. You have real problems. You have real temptations in your life, and so do I. You have real sins that you may have committed today. He is interceding for us. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin in unrighteousness. He's quick to forgive. So let's just begin to call upon the Lord. I don't have any real specific altar call tonight. I would like us to, to be a church that knows how to just to enter into God's presence and to take that few minutes. Everybody's tired. Everybody wants to get home and eat if you haven't eaten. And everybody wants to get to bed and get ready for the next day. But this is a church, y'all. And we want to come before the Lord. And let the Lord touch us for a few minutes. I don't necessarily have to tell you what to pray about. We've been preaching His Word. We've been hearing His Word. We've been hearing what Jesus did for us. What He does for us. What He's going to do for us. And we need to acknowledge the Lord. We need to thank the Lord. And we need to worship Him. We need to ask Him to retouch us and refill us. And maybe uh, maybe you have sins you need to ask God to forgive you of. Maybe you need more strength to resist temptation tomorrow. Ask Him. He says, Ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. <clears throat> so Father, we just want to come before You. We thank You for the gift of Jesus Christ. Even if we just did it last service, we're going to thank You again. Thank You for the gift of Jesus Christ. Thank You that past tense, Lord, You have obtained obtained eternal redemption for us. You got it. Your own right arm got You the victory and the salvation. You didn't need our help. And You didn't need the help of a Levitical law. And You don't need the help of animal sacrifices. And You don't need the help of our own goodness and merits. You did it Yourself. And we have put our faith in You. And now You're making us good. You're making us righteous. You've robed us in the righteousness of Jesus. Your fulfillment of the law and Your personal righteousness counts for our righteousness because You counted it so. And we're thankful for that, God. And we don't want to just run through life saying, I'm glad I'm saved, but we want, to, we want to think about what You did for us. We want to be able to share with others what You've done for us and what we're hoping and believing You to do according to Your Word for us. I thank You for the blood of Jesus and the power in the blood of Jesus to make us clean. I thank You, Lord. Like David, we read those Psalms, Lord, from David that he wrote about wash me and I'll be clean. Have mercy upon me according to Your loving kindness and Your tender mercies. We acknowledge our transgressions before You, God. 
And when we do that, you said you forgive us. I just thank you, Lord, for your presence here tonight. I thank you that we're two or three gathered together in your name. There you are in the midst of them. Would you just take a few minutes just to worship the Lord tonight before you go? Mm-hmm.